Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. For four decades, June Goralnik has created plays, performance projects, and multimedia installations, as well as directing new works, classic plays, and developing community cultural programs. June's work has been beamed to the space station, as well as performed at many Earth venues across the country in New York, California, Washington, D.C., and North Carolina. Please read her very robust bio at her website, junegoralnik.com. It was my great pleasure to converse with June as she described her playwriting process, the development of the Piedmont Laureate Program, and the importance of creative work. If you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did, it will make your day. So get a writing implement and your notepad ready. Here are some tips, tricks, inspiration, and wisdom from June Goralnik. Enjoy the episode. Hi, June. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. You're very welcome. I'm delighted to be on the podcast, and I think you're doing an amazing job for playwrights and artists in this area. Well, thank you. June, you have a pretty extraordinary bio and many years of experience. You've written, what, 15 plays? Is that right? Yes, that sounds just about right. Yeah, they're just all stacked up on the floor in my office. Um. (laughs) I have to ask you, has the writing gotten any easier? Oh, my God. I I would love to lie and say yes, but that would be a bloody lie, girl. No, it doesn't get easier. Making art is not easy, and nobody ever said it was. So I'm not going to go lie and tell people, yes, a breeze. I just sit down, and the things just pop right out of my mouth. No, they, they really don't. Each one has had its challenges and struggles and torturous journey. And uh, you know what? That's art. And I embrace it. You know what? You got to embrace that to, to be an artist. And I think I don't know any artist that doesn't have that experience. You know, once in a while, sure, you sit down and, you know, something just rolls off your pen. And those those are blessed days. And But those days, they're they're not every day. You know, you to me, the secret is, is the butt in the chair. Somebody says, what's your secret to writing 15 plays? There's no secret. It's just butt in the chair. That's it. That's the name of the game. Yes. I've never heard anybody say that it gets any easier. I was hoping that you would be the first one. (laughs) I'm really sorry to disappoint you. Oh my goodness. But I do think that it's, there's a little bit about accepting that it's going to be hard every time, that it's not a surprise that each time this is hard work and sort of giving into that rather than being surprised or resisting the difficulty of it? Yeah, I'm not surprised by it anymore. That's that's true. My first play, I will tell you, I was really surprised at how hard it was. I had no idea. I'm just the whole process was torture from beginning to end. I had a writing partner at the time and it was my first really big play. I mean, it was big. We sat down and we started started drafting it out. And two and a half years later, we finished. So, yeah. oh my goodness, you know, we had no, we had no idea. We just had no idea. It's a great ride. It's a great ride, and I, I really hope that everyone tries the ride because it's, it's, it's torturous and fun at the same time. 
I've been surprised as a playwright by how long, and you just alluded to this, how long it can take to birth a project from inspiration through to hopefully a production. And then also the feeling that it's never done. Like then I was used to being an actor. And so you're in a play, it goes up, it's over, that's it. But as a playwright, I just keep thinking, oh, here's another draft and another draft. And then we have a production and then I need to do another draft. And so it was also getting my mind around the time of creation and how long that can stretch. Yeah. The thing that's so miraculous about plays as a literary form, you know, as opposed to, let's say, a novel or a a poem, is that plays continually change. I had a play that was very successful, won a whole lot of awards, and then it sort of died away. And then suddenly there was interest again in it, like eight years later. And I'm sitting there listening to it and thinking, oh, no, wait, I need to rewrite that. And I need to rewrite that. And and so I realized, mm-hmm. oh, no, it's never done. You see it years later and you think, oh, I can't, I got to fix this or this isn't right. Or this, now that this has happened, I better in, involve that. So it, it's such a living process. And I think every playwright has always had that. I mean, if you think about somebody like Tennessee Williams, who was also a constant rewriter, there's how many versions of Glassman Andrews, you know, this this dozens of versions of his stuff, you know, I think we're not alone. I don't think we're alone in this. Uh, it, it's never over. And I think that's what's marvelous about it, too. It's, it, it's certainly a living art form. Well, that's it's good and bad, bad for us because we can never leave it alone, right? <laughs> you have right. to keep coming back on it. Oh, it's funny, though. Talking of, you know, drafts, I, I have this terribly bad habit you know, I save drafts. I print out a draft and I save it. So what happens is my entire office then becomes covered in boxes and boxes of paper as I'm working on a plate. And it's a sin. I know it's a sin that I'm, I'm, I'm printing them out and I'm wasting this paper and I feel terrible about it. But I do it anyway because I keep thinking, well, I may need that draft or there's something from that draft I'm going to want to pull out. And sometimes it is true. I want to go back and I pull something out that I threw away and because it took me a while to realize, uh oh, I need that. I need it. I, I shouldn't cut it out, you know. So it's a, it's such a crazy process. But that's why we love it, right? Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about your process. It seems like you put a lot of research into the scripts that you write. I've only read two of them, so I'll, I'm making some assumptions here, but it seems like you tend to write fiction based on facts, and that would require a fair bit of research. So I'm wondering if you could tell us how you start. Do you have the idea, then do the research, then do the writing, or is the order flipped, or is it all at once? Could you talk me through, maybe choose one play if it's different for each, you know, for each one? Honestly, the only one that's been really different is my recent play, which was based on my own life, in, in part anyway. And so I took a very different road to write that play. But the majority of my other plays yeah, are historically based in some way. You know, how do, how do I get inspired? People sometimes ask me that. And I wish I had like a really pat answer, but I don't. You know, for Birds of a Feather, which was my play before this you know, work in progress, I saw this children's book, you know, clearance book rack. And I, I'm looking at this book, this little beautiful children's book, and it had drawings of hats, women's hats from the turn of the century with birds in them. And, you know, you hear about the proverbial light bulb. I don't know if it was a light bulb, but it was was sort of felt like a 
pounding migraine that occurred in my head and was like, wait a minute, feathers, hats, extinction of birds, conservation, women's suffrage movement. I mean, I felt like this rush of pounding images and that started me on the path for Birds of a Feather, a comedy about the extinction, learning about the beginning of the conservation movement, the billions of birds that were killed to put on women's hats and, and how that all sort of came together, you know, through the 1920s and involved the suffragette movement as well. So, you know, that was started from this, this little book I saw, a little children's book. Um, so I don't know how I get ideas. I don't know if, if people really know. You know, my process is, I feel like this pit, <laughs> I pit in my stomach. Something happens. I don't know. I feel something. I see something, I feel something, and and it starts me asking questions. For birds, it was the question, how did those feathers, what's the history of those feathers on those women's hats, you know? And it starts me down this road. Some may say it's a road of no return. And uh, sometimes it feels like that. You just, I I follow the questions where they lead. And as I start researching and thinking about it and learning about real people who live, a kind of parallel life begins to come together for me, a parallel fiction, a fiction of, wow, I wonder if a person like this would find themselves in this circumstance, what would they do? And once you ask that question, that's how a place, I think, starts for me. And it's been pretty much the process through, I don't know, 40 years of writing. Just, uh, I, I start something triggers it, triggers me. Like I, I wrote a play with Cynthia Mitchell called Women of, Women of the Light, and it's about women lighthouse keepers in the 1800s. I had the idea of just standing in a lighthouse and looking down, and it, you know, I was really breathing heavy because I was out of shape trying to climb to the top of this lighthouse, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, women carrying those heavy you know, lamps, carrying them up the stairs – I wonder if there ever were women lighthouse keepers in the 1800s. And so, you know, it just starts to propel the journey. You know, people say, what's your process? I don't, the process is I just find out as much as I possibly can. And as I'm finding out, sometimes the story, it starts to live in my head. And I'm a real passionate collector of napkins. I write on napkins. Why? Why don't I bring little pads with me? Well, I want to fool myself. I'm, I'm trying to fool myself that I'm not really thinking about the play. I'm just toying with it. I, I'm toying with <laughs> ideas. That way, so it's not serious. It doesn't feel like work. It's really like, oh, I happen to have these like 50 napkins in my handbag. I think I'll make some notes today. So my process is as, as my handbag becomes totally weighted down with billions of little pieces of napkins upon which I write these pieces that I see in my head and dialogue and all. Eventually I have to spill these little napkins out somewhere. And when I spill them out, I start to see that I, maybe I have something, you know, and that's when I start to take out the yellow pad, my ubiquitous yellow pads. I I never type my plays initially. I hand write my plays. And that's because, you know, I'm old girl. I'm old. You know, what can I say? I got to have the pen in my hand, the tactile feeling of a pen in my hand on my yellow pad, lined yellow pad papers, which I have about 10 billion of covering my office floor. Um, And so that's how it, it starts. The little napkins start to become 
text on a yellow pad and uh, I start to see and hear. You know, I know you're very, you know, obviously what I know about you, you your passion for audio drama. And I don't, my passion is I, I listen to music of a time that I'm working in. I, I listen to everything that I can find that's of that period in terms of audio. Because to me, the sound, the sound is as important as the images that I see as well. You know, obviously I'm going to look at paintings and if it's mon- more modern than photography, you know, as much visual material as I can, but I also have to have the audio. You know, because the audio is telling me something incredibly important because the audio is connected to voice, of course. Right. You know, th- there is a connection. I, sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's more obvious. And so I, I immerse I have to immerse myself into that sound, the sound of that world. And then it starts. Yeah. Then it starts. Then you start, you know, like everyone else, I I try to write little they start as little autobiographies of all my characters. <laughs> they end up being novellas. You know, I always sort of do novellas for each of my characters, um, you know, to sort of dig deep, dig deep, dig into who are, who are these people? Who are they to each other? Why the, you know, excuse my language, but FCK, should anyone care about them? Why do I care about them? Who are they? You know, let them talk to me. They, you have to let them talk to you. You know, I, I, I let them speak to me through their autobiographies. And like everyone, once you have that feeling of, who these people are and, and maybe what the time is and, and maybe a little bit about your story. You know, for me, the next step is the architecture of a play. People don't talk about that so much anymore. And, and maybe I'm old fashioned. I don't know to, to, to speak about it, but architecture is incredibly important to me. You know, it, it's like, what house do I want to build for my play? What does that house look like? What's its structure? Sometimes that's the longest takes the longest process of all because once you have the character and they have the story it's like what is the best structure that will engage you know and transport what I'm trying to say and to me that's sometimes it's it's more apparent than others what that architecture is going to be you know something I you know I love Bertolt Brecht he's maybe one of my favorite playwrights and something he always did that I that's always been useful to me is I, I title my scenes because finding mm-hmm. that title is part of building that house. You know, it's, it's your infrastructure. Um, so after I've sort of charted out my scenes, I, t- I try to title them and that's my stepping stone, right? I feel like it's my stepping stone in- into my house. I don't know if it's helpful to other people even to hear how one writer works, but uh, that's, that's how I work, you know? And then Jesus Christ, 10,000 drafts later, the first draft I don't even care about. I'm just, I, I make, I go away. Right. I've, I've been really blessed in my life to have opportunities of residencies, artist residencies around the country. And it's been a good thing for me. I like to once I have it all, I've charted stuff out. I know who my characters are, at least I think I know, because you never really know until you start writing. Then I go away. I lock myself in a room and I do not <laughs> emerge until I have a bloody draft. And I don't care if it's crap, because you know what you got to expect is going to be crap. I don't care. I just want to get something, get it, get what's in my head, what's burning in my head, get it down on paper. And then the real work begins. That all is just the foreplay, you know, then the real stuff. begins. Yeah. Then you make something out of it. So that's my process. 
Thank you for explaining that because I do think it's helpful for people to hear kind of the nuts and bolts of how it happens. Most people, their experience is sitting in the audience and seeing the production of a play, but there are things at work, sometimes years in advance of that, that seems sort of mysterious and maybe even seems either easy or impossible to do. And so I think that kind of insight can be really helpful for people. Well, good. And I want to say, I think everyone can write a play. Now, is it going to be good? I don't know, you know, but it, it can be learned. It can be a learned skill set. You know, you can write a poem that can be a learned skill set. Is it going to be, you know, you're going to be Walt Whitman? I, I don't know. Or Sylvia Platt. I, who knows? But you can learn to write a poem. You can learn to write a play. Whatever process one engages in, there, there are processes to learn how to do that. And I think that's what's so marvelous about art. It doesn't have to be something just special few do. Yes, a special few can do it well. Some do it, very few do it brilliantly. But, it, you know, as an art form, it can be something, and, and I know maybe we share this view, it's my hope that more people engage with plays on every level. Yes, Absolutely. I'm wondering if you have a favorite playwriting exercise that either you enjoy or that you might recommend for people who want to sit down and write something or are feeling stuck. Do I have a favorite? No, no, actually, I don't. Because I think it just depends on where you're stuck. You know, if you're stuck with dialogue, you know, yeah, there's there's lots of fun dialogue things. If you've actually written a whole lot of dialogue, but none of it makes sense. You know, something I, I used to play, I played a game with myself. It, it was kind of a strange game, but it was actually a really useful game for me anyway. Because um, I, 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 I overwrite, like everyone, most people, I, I overwrite. You know, my first play was six hours long, right? The first draft was six hours long. I didn't know. I didn't know how many pages a play should be on my first, when I first wrote my first play. And, you know, sitting around with some actors and uh, six and six, six Plus hours later, I realized, well, that damn thing's too long, you know? So from that, I play this game. And the game is I literally take a page of dialogue and I cut out lines. I randomly, every third line, I cut it out. And then I look at what I have. And if I don't really miss those lines, I'm t- I, it means, man, you've really overwritten this damn thing, you know? If you don't, if you don't miss it, then it, you know, it's telling me something that I, that I haven't and wasting a whole lot of words, and I'm not at the core yet. So it, 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 it's a strange little game, but it, it can be quite useful, actually, because uh, I think we sometimes say things too many times when once may be enough. But how we say it that once, well, that's what we have to find. That's That's the real trick. Yes, I love that exercise because I find myself, and I'm sure other playwrights feel this way as well, sometimes I want to keep something just because I like that one line, not because it actually does anything useful to the play, but just because I thought I was so clever in that moment and And (laughs) I want to hold on to it. Yeah, and you might have been, I'm sure you were clever in that moment. (laughs) No, no, because it's not a question of not being clever in that moment. It's a question of what does this house need? Does your house, your playhouse need this to be wonderful? Or is this just embellishment and sort of a pretty little curlicue, you know, on the window? So that's, you know, to me, what is the art of playwriting? It's about letting go, letting go, let it all go. Sometimes if it's, you know, if you can't find out what to let go, cut, cut, cut until you see what there is really there. And then, then you can always build back up. 
Then I go through my many boxes. If I think, oh my God, I shouldn't have cut that lawn. I need that damn lawn. All right. I go back in on it. I have it. But at first you got to, you've got to be a wickedly brutal with your, your own text, you know, just uh, get the darn knife out and cut it away. Absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said for having faith that if you cut it away, you can write more. Like I think another thing that stopped me when I was just starting out was that I wasn't sure that I would be able to write more if I cut away too much. And now I have much more of a feeling of faith and abundance in the process. It's like there is no shortage of words. You know, there are no shortage of ideas. And I can I can either refine it as you suggested by looking at previous drafts, or I can just write something else. <laughs> yeah, you can write something else. And you know what? Maybe it'll be even more wonderful and marvelous, you know? I know a lot of people don't keep hard copy dictionaries. I, I have a sizable <laughs> collection in my office. I love them. They're wonderful friends to have around as I write because they constantly remind me, you know what? There's a billion words here, you know? I, I'm never going to be short of a word if I need it, you know? Open my dictionary and it's, it's in there somewhere. So it, it keeps me company if I feel like, oh no, I shouldn't cut that. I'm going to miss it. Well, you know what? There's more where that came from. So 2020 is my year as Piedmont Laureate. And- Congratulations. I'm very happy that that uh, a playwright is the Piedmont Laureate. Thank you. I am as well. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I understand that you were around and instigated the Piedmont Laureate program. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, you know, it's something I, I, I take pride in it. And I take pride in it because it's always, you know, I, I've lived uh, two lives. You know, one life as a, as a working writer, working artist, working theater director, and then my other life as, a, as an arts administrator. And in a sense, they were separate, but in a sense, they were parallel and crisscrossed. Because I think what makes a good administrator is coming up with creative opportunities for other artists, you know, for building opportunities for artists. And, you know, when I was the executive director of the City of Raleigh Arts Commission, you know, we had some wonderful programs, absolutely wonderful programs. But honestly, you know, as I looked around the triangle, I didn't see a lot of really good funding opportunities happening for authors in our area. And I'd been looking at models of laureate programs in other cities around the country. What kind of bothered me about uh, those programs is that they were focused solely, generally speaking, on poets. And I love poets. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Poets are some of my best friends. But it seemed a little bit unfair. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, why can't we have the first laureate program in this area that cycles each year will have a different type of literary author? And what a great opportunity for the people who live in our communities to engage with different types of literary artists over, let's say, the course of four or five years. So I became quite, shall we say, dedicated to this idea of trying to make this happen and, uh, you know, started to engage in conversations uh, with the City of Raleigh Arts Commission, uh, other staff members and our, our wonderful commissioners and then thought, wow, 
And I think it would be great if we can pay some folks some really, you know, at least some sizable cash here to be a laureate and go around and work with our community. And so, you know, we got a whole bunch of, you know, we got the different agencies on board um, and they're still going strong. And I want to say I've been so happy to have been a part of this program, the, you know, the program that you now so aptly represent. That program means a lot to me. It's being modeled in some other places. Um, other communities in North Carolina have started to look at it. So I think the opportunity to put writers front and center, writers of every genre, I think is at the core of the PMO Laureate program. And I'm really proud to be associated with it. Well, thank you on behalf of myself and the other laureates for that, because it is a wonderful program. And I feel like we're very lucky in this community to have it. Never had a bad laureate. There has never been a bad laureate. Every laureate has just been absolutely marvelous. And of course, you know, Jackie Shelton Green was our first laureate. Started started on the highest note possible, and we've continued. I think the program has continued on that high note through all you know through through its history. So yeah, I I love the program. I'm, I'm so glad that you're representing the program this year. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? Well, I, I just want to say to anyone who may be listening, you know, and I think obviously artist soapbox, you, you're going to attract other artists. I just want to tell other artists that you're important. What you do is important in this world. And I just hope that people hold that in their hearts and in their souls. I know we live in critical times, in times that many of us, you know, I'm old. I've never seen this. You know, yes, I saw 9-11, you know, and many, many other things, but I have never seen this. But I have to say that it may feel overwhelming. It may feel like, well, why does art count in times like this? In my opinion, it counts even more because people need hope. People need a way to express their feelings, their thoughts, you know, what's happening to them. And I think art allows us to do this in in a way that's healthy and uplifting and sacred. And I use that word in, in all its connotations. Um, so I, you know, I just am sending my love to everyone who's listening and, and I hold you all up high in whatever you choose to create and in what you, you want to give to the world. It's important. Thank you so much, June. That's a beautiful way for us to end. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you for everything you are doing to, to uplift artists in this area. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much for listening. For more information, please see the show notes and our website, artistsoapbox.org. We are on Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.